looking for a corpse. The missing children mantra mocked Detective Inspector Don Merrick. He was looking at sixteen hours and counting. And counting was just what the parents of Tim Golding were doing. Counting every minute that took them further from their last glimpse of their son. He didn't have to think about what they were feeling. He was a father, and he knew the visceral fear lying in wait to assail any parent whose child is suddenly, unaccountably, not where they should be. Merrick knew the dread would continue screaming inside Alistair and Shelley Golding until his team found their son, alive or dead. He knew because he'd witnessed the same agony in the lives of Jerry and Pam Lefebvre, whose son Guy had been missing now for just over fifteen months. They'd dragged the canal, combed the parks and wasteland within a two-mile radius, but not a trace of Guy had ever surfaced. Merrick had been the bagman on that inquiry, which was the main reason why he'd been assigned to Tim Golding. He had the knowledge to see whether there were obvious links between the cases. But beyond knowledge, his instincts already nagged that whoever had snatched Guy Lefebvre had now claimed his second victim. He leaned against the roof of his car and swept the long curve of the railway embankment with binoculars. Every available body was down there, combing the scrubby grass for any trace of the eight-year-old boy who had been missing since the previous evening. Tim had been playing with two friends, some complicated game of make-believe involving a superhero. The friends had been called in by their mother, and Tim had said he was going down the embankment to watch the freight trains that used this spur to bring roadstone from the quarry on the outskirts of the city to the railhead. Two women heading for the bus stop and bingo thought they'd caught a glimpse of his canary yellow Bradfield Victoria shirt between the trees that lined the top of the steep slope leading down to the tracks. That had been around twenty to eight. Nobody else had come forward to say they'd seen the boy. His face was already etched on Merrick's mind. The school photograph resembled a million others. But Merrick could have picked out Tim's sandy hair, his open grin, and the blue eyes crinkled behind Harry Potter glasses from any lineup, just as he could have done with Guy Lefebvre. Wavy dark brown hair, brown eyes, a scatter of freckles across his nose and cheeks. Seven years old, tall for his age, he'd last been seen heading for an overgrown stand of trees on the edge of Downton Park, about three miles from where Merrick was standing now. It had been around seven on a damp spring evening. Guy had asked his mother if he could go out for another half hour's play. He'd been looking for birds' nests, mapping them obsessively on a grid of the scrubby little corpse. They'd found the grid two days later, on the far edge of the trees, crumpled into a ball twenty yards from the bank of the disused canal that had once run from the railhead to the long, silent wool mills. That had been the last anyone had seen of anything connected to Guy Lefebvre, and now another boy seemed also to have vanished into thin air. Merrick sighed and lowered the binoculars. They'd had to wait for daylight to complete their search of the area. They'd all clung to a faint hope that Tim had had an accident, that he was lying somewhere injured and unable to make himself heard. That hope was dead now.
The frustration of having no leads bit deep. Time to round up the usual suspects. Merrick pulled out his mobile and called his sergeant, Kevin Matthews. Kev, Don here. Start bringing the nonces in. No sign then. Not a trace. It's time to start rattling some cages. How big a radius? Merrick sighed again. Bradfield Metropolitan Police Area stretched over an area of 44 square miles, protecting and serving somewhere in the region of 900,000 people. According to the latest official estimates he'd read, that meant there were probably somewhere in the region of 3,000 active pedophiles in the force area. Fewer than 10% of that number was on the register of sex offenders, rather less than the tip of the iceberg. But that was all they had to go on. Let's start with a two-mile radius. He ended the call. This was Merrick's first major case since his promotion, and already he suspected he wasn't going to deliver a result that would make anybody happy. Dr. Tony Hill balanced a bundle of files on the arm carrying his battered briefcase and pushed open the door of the faculty office. He had enough time before his seminar group to collect his mail and deal with whatever couldn't be ignored. The psychology department's secretary emerged from the inner office at the sound of the door closing. Dr. Hill, she said, sounding unreasonably pleased with herself. Morning, Mrs. Stirrett, Tony mumbled, dropping files and briefcase to the floor while he reached for the contents of his pigeonhole. The dean's not very pleased with you. Janine Stirrett said. Oh, and why might that be? The cocktail party with SJP yesterday evening. You were supposed to be there. I was engrossed in some work. The time just ran away from me. They're a major donor to the Behavioral Psychology Research Program. Tony grabbed his mail in an unruly pile and stuffed it into the front pocket of his briefcase. I'm sure they had a wonderful time without me, he said, scooping up his files and backing towards the door. The dean expects all academic staff to support fundraising, Dr. Hill. It's not much to ask that you give up a couple of hours of your time. To satisfy the prurient curiosity of the executives of a pharmaceutical company? To be honest, Mrs. Stirrett, I'd rather set my hair on fire and beat the flames out with a hammer. Using his elbow to manipulate the handle, he escaped into the corridor without waiting to check the affronted look he knew would be plastered across her face. Temporarily safe in the haven of his own office, Tony slumped in the chair behind his computer. What the hell was he doing here? He'd managed to bury his unease about the academic life for long enough to accept the reader's job at St. Andrews, but ever since his brief and traumatic excursion back into the field in Germany, he'd been unable to settle. The growing realization that the university had hired him principally because his was a sexy name on the prospectus hadn't helped. Students enrolled to be close to the man whose profiles had nailed some of the country's most notorious serial killers. And donors wanted the vicarious, voyeuristic thrill of the war stories they tried to cajole from him. If he'd learned nothing else from his sojourn in the university, 
he'd come to understand that he wasn't cut out to be a performing seal. This morning's encounter with Janine Stirrett felt like the last straw. Tony pulled his keyboard closer and began to compose a letter. He wasn't an academic. He was a clinician first and foremost, then a profiler. His resignation would take effect at the end of term, which gave him a couple of months to figure out what he was going to do next. Day two, and still no trace of Tim Golding. In his heavy heart, Merrick knew they were no longer searching for a living child. He'd visited Alistair and Shelley Golding that morning, cut to the bone by the momentary flash of optimism that lit their eyes when he walked into their neat Victorian terraced cottage. As soon as they'd comprehended that he had nothing to offer them, their eyes had glazed over. Merrick had left the house feeling bleak and empty. He glanced down the street, thinking ironically that Tim Golding had, in a way, been a victim of gentrification. Harry's town, where the Goldings lived, had been a working-class enclave, until enterprising young couples in search of affordable housing had begun buying up decaying properties and restoring them, creating a trendy new suburb. What had been lost was a sense of community. Ten years before, Tim Golding would have known most of the people on his street, and they would have known him. On a summer evening, people would have been out and about, walking to allotments or from the pub, standing in their doorways chatting as they soaked up the last rays of the sun. Their very presence would have protected the boy, and they would have noticed a stranger, would have clocked his passage and kept...